we're talking about it matters. And does anybody remember what it is? Our participation matters. There we go. We have one good student in the whole class here. <laughs> one gold star. So our participation in what God wants to do on the earth. When we pray, our, Lord, let your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We, we sometimes get this idea that he's just going to, you know, just drop something down on us and go, wow, look, golden tablets. No, that's not really what he did. The deal is God doesn't do anything unless we participate. I mean, creation, but... Then he put us on the earth and he expects our participation. There's a story in the Old Testament about Moses and they're fighting these Amalekites. And they, were, they were bad people. They were trained warriors and Israel wasn't a trained army. And, and, and so they, they had to have divine assistance to beat these Amalekites. And so what did they do? Moses, their leader, held up his hands to God. And as long as his hands were up, Israel was winning. But he got tired because he's human. And his hands came down. And then the Israelites would begin to get beat. And so Aaron and her, they came and they set chairs up and they sat down beside him and they raised up his arms and they sat there and he kept his arms up until the enemy was destroyed. Now, if you're a literalist in this, you're going to say, well, God's given us some great battle strategy. We should use that when we fight our enemies. No, he's not teaching you how to win wars. He's teaching you how to win battles in the spirit. He's saying it's going to take your participation. Things that you think are seemingly insignificant. You're like... Raising your hands, what's that going to do? What's that going to do in an army, to an army? I, I don't know. I just know it was integral. And if his hands weren't up, they were getting beat. Some people don't want to come help him lift his hands because they want to be the ones that lift their hands. Well, I'm not going to help him lift his hands. I'm going to lift my hands. Everyone's got a place. Everyone's got a place and a position. And these seemingly insignificant things, even if you're just a helper, are integral in us winning spiritual battles. Many people do not defeat the enemy because they will not put emphasis on the seemingly insignificant thing. And that's what we're talking about. It matters. Your participation with what God wants to do on the earth, it matters. It may seem insignificant. It may seem foolish to some people. But it does matter. You know, when we get into 2020 and we're talking about this focus on getting healthy, being balanced, and really trying our, our best to do what we can do to, to bring health and balance and goodness to our body, people say, well, that's not very spiritual. Well, it's extremely spiritual. I don't know if you know this, but when you're dead, you can't be spiritual. So if you die 20 years before your time, I'm going to tell you your health was a big issue because you might die 20 years before your time and you may never walk into your ministry. The little things matter. It says in the Bible, exercise profits a little. So let's just throw it out the window. No, it profits a little. There's a little bit. It has a part to play. These seemingly insignificant things really do matter. When Jesus was on the earth and, and he would do a miracle, he would always require something first. Roll away the stone. And he raised Lazarus from the dead. You know, if they hadn't rolled away the stone, if they had been like a lot of us and said, well, if you can raise the dead, you can move the stone. I'm not, you know, blow it into pieces, then raise the dead. The deal is it required an act of obedience. If they had said, no, I don't feel like raising, I don't, I, don't, I don't think I want to get up and move the stone. You know, it's going to be embarrassing. I just don't think it would, anything would have happened. Fill the water pots with water. Six water pots, 30 gallons a piece. They didn't have a water hose. I don't know if you knew that. 
They have to get it out of a well. It's a lot of work. You say, you fill the water pots. If you want to do the miracle, you do it. But God requires us to do things that seem insignificant. So he does great works behind that. It matters. It matters. Your participation in what he wants you to do, even if it seems like the littlest thing in the world, it matters. And that's what we want to talk about. Last week we talked about water baptism. This week we're going to talk about worship. Because a lot of people don't know that matters. In fact, there's a whole lot of people think worship is optional. It's like, yeah, I'll do it if I feel like it. I do it if I like the song. But there's a lot of people just sit in the foyer and wait for worship to be over. Because it doesn't matter. I don't like the scene. I don't like the music. I don't like the songs. It matters. Your participation matters. You know, I think the problem with it is, is that a lot of people are confused about worship because they think it's about music. And so I think it's good to define what worship really is, where it comes from, before we can even know if it matters or not. What's the origin? Well, the English origin of the word worship comes from a word called worth-ship. It, 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 it denotes a worthiness of the individual receiving special honor due to his worth. It originates with worth, not with music. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't originate with your favorite song. It originates with how you feel about God. Is he worth it? Worth. It's a real subjective thing. It's an opinion. It's... It's, your, it's based on your experience. You know, I, I love Wendy and she loves me. And so one of the ways she makes me happy is she makes me pimento cheese. And I think it's worth all the calories. I mean, I look at it. It's like, I don't know what it is. And I love the way she makes it. And it's worth it, you know. And we have this little saying. We both try to watch what we eat. And we'll look at something that's sweet. We did this a lot through Thanksgiving. And, and we would taste it, and I'd say, that's worthy. And when do you say, is it worthy? You know, it's worthy. You know, we're going to eat this. It doesn't matter what it does to us. We're going to eat it. Some things aren't worthy. You know, it's like, nah. But that's subjective because a lot of people hate pimento cheese. I don't know if you know that. They think it's old people's food. And I guess it is because, you know, if the shoe fits, you. But the deal is. I can sing its praise. I love pimento cheese. People have heard me say this forever. And I'm not connecting the worship of God with cheese. I'm really not trying to say that. I'm just trying to say there's things that are worth it to you and things that are not. You know, I'll just use another example that, you know, Wendy and I have been married a long time, 38 and a half years. And she's on her fourth wedding ring <laughs> with the same guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, and you know, through the years, I've bought her a new ring. You know, we've kind of upgraded every time. It's like we want to get something nicer. There's never been a time that she's ever said, buy me a new ring, I'm worth it. Every time I'm like, I want to get you this because, it, and I don't say it to her every time like that, but it's because she's worth it to me. I want her. And, and you know, the, the ring that she has today is a ring that I've always wanted her to have that I've never been able to afford. And, you know, for years. And then a few years back, I had the money. And it was expensive. 
And I knew what I wanted. And I didn't ask her. I really just went and did it. Because I knew if I asked her, she'd say, don't spend all that money. But you see, it's me. It's my worth that motivated me. And I didn't buy it for her so she could show her girlfriends. I bought it for her so that every time she looks at it, she'd know that I'm, I think she's worth it. Worship originates with worth. What's he worth? I think a lot of people don't like worship because they really just don't know the value. He's just not worth that much to you. Again, I'm not talking about singing. I'm talking about a a deep sense of experience with Jesus that you want him to know. You know, singing and, and music are just, they're just vehicles that we can express our, our worship. They're not, that's not worship. That's like looking at a street sign and thinking the sign is the destination. The street sign points you to the destination. The worship is not the music. It's not the song. It's your heart. Those things are vehicles. If you really... Feel that worth in your heart towards the Lord. You don't, it doesn't matter what you're singing. It might be old hymns. It might be new stuff. It, it doesn't matter. If you just want good music, just find music you like. Find that genre of music and go to the concerts and do that. But that's not what worship is. It originates with worth. And then the Greek word. That was the English word, the Greek word. This is, you know, Greek has, it's the most specific language on the, that's ever been on the face of the earth. Five million words. Five million specific words. Our language, English, has like 150,000 words. That's all it has. So we can't be as specific with our, when we say a word, so many of our words have triple meanings, you know. But not in, not in Greek. You can say exactly what you want to say. And when the Holy Spirit was, was going to write the New Testament, it was a language that was picked by the Spirit of God that was written through these men of old, and they wrote it out, and they said exactly what God wanted them to say. And the word that they, they chose was this one. And what does it mean? To kiss like a dog licking his master's hand. Worship doesn't start with music. Worship starts with affection. Why would he choose this? Is he calling us dogs? No, anybody that has a dog knows that that dog's going to meet you and love you on your worst day, your best day, every day. He's going to meet you and he's not going to be in his mind having logical thoughts like, well, he fed me good yesterday and rubbed my stomach and, and so I guess I'll go and lick his hand. No, you know, you could have been mean to the dog yesterday. And the truth is, that dog runs to you and starts licking your hand. God says, our worship should not be contingent upon our logic. And I know that worship is an act of our will. But that dog's not sitting there going, okay, I'll go over and lick his hand, you know. No, it's not an act of his will. It's an affection. It's a bond. He has a bond to his master. He loves him. He runs to him. And he's just saying, lick, 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 lick. And it doesn't wait for the appropriate moment. I mean, you could be hugging your spouse and the dog's, you know, getting its way in there. And it's like, you know, wait, dog, you're not, you're not doing this right. The thing is with worship, it's spontaneous. 
It's almost like we can't help it. It's an affection of our heart. It's a bond. And it's based upon our experience and what we think he's worth. He's awesome. Because we have a history with him. We have a history with God. And an affection towards him. Our worship's not based upon our logic. It's based more upon our subconscious. Our subconscious emotion. It's in your DNA. You have to fight it not to worship. I'm not asking you to manufacture anything. I'm not asking you to do anything or dance or worship like me or Maria or anybody else. Here's what I'm asking you to do. I'm asking you not to restrict what God's got in your heart. When he calls you to do something, do it. Because that seemingly insignificant thing, that raising of your hands, could be the difference between defeating an enemy and not defeating an enemy. And you don't even realize it. You've allowed the enemy to shut you down because the enemy knows how powerful these things really are. Worship. That bond. And we're going to go to Luke chapter 7. And it's a familiar story, but I'm going to read it. So one of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him. And Jesus went to the Pharisee's house and he sat down to eat. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought this alabaster flask of fragrant oil. She stood at his feet behind him and weeping, she began to wash his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with fragrant oil. This is an expensive gift, extravagant gift. She was a sinner. She was a prostitute. She was a woman that had no business being at that dinner. She had no business being at the feet of Jesus. She had, though, okay. Do I need to read you in Leviticus what it says about prostitutes, that they're to be shunned and pushed out of the city, and some of them are being stoned? Am I, am I to show you that? You don't have any business, but how come God keeps doing this? Why does he keep doing this? Why does he keep taking people that are absolutely forbidden to do what they're doing, and he shows them as the key to the whole thing? How does he, why does he keep showing us people that... The law forbids them to come to God. Everything forbids them. Society forbids them. Their profession you know, forbids it. And God says, no, come to me. And like a dog licking his master's hand, just it doesn't matter if it's an appropriate time. Just come as you are, not as you should be. And just come to the presence. She couldn't help herself. It was just an expression of worship. And it was extravagant, and it was expensive, and it was embarrassing. It caused a scene. Isn't that crazy? And the Pharisee who invited him looked at that. He said, well, if this guy was a prophet, he'd know what manner of woman this is. She's touching him. She's a sinner. She looked like a prostitute. Everybody knew she was a prostitute. The oil that she used was the tool of a prostitute for high-end clientele. She didn't know how to worship. She'd never been 
to church and seeing people worshiping God. She worshiped in the way that came from her heart. She came in with all she knew. And she rubbed him and touched him and, and everybody was freaking out. But not Jesus. And then Jesus does something that's kind of crazy. I talked about worship originating from worth. And the next thing Jesus does is he draws a contrast between two people and what they thought Jesus was worth. And he said, Simon, I got something to say to you. And the teacher said, I mean, Simon said, say it. He said, well, there's this creditor that had two debtors and one owed him 500 denarii, the other 50, and they had nothing to pay him. So he freely forgave them both. Tell me which one of them is going to love him more. Simon said, well, I guess the one that owed him 500. He said, you've answered correctly. Jesus affixed a monetary value, a worth to their response to him. He said, there's one that it means a lot, I mean a lot to, and there's one that I don't mean too much to, because he turns right around and he says, you know, Simon, this, do, you, do you see this woman? Do you see this woman or do you just see a prostitute? Because I see a woman. Do you see her? Everybody sees her. I mean, you know, it's a ridiculous question. It's like, no, she's the focus of the whole room. Everybody's, the, the air's out of the room, okay? Do you see her? It's because Simon couldn't see her. All he could see is what she was. Much like us. All they could see is what was wrong with her. He's saying, I see her, and this is the reason. You both owed me a debt that neither one of you could pay, and I'm going to forgive them both. Which one of you would love the most? He said, you know, because when I came into your house, you didn't give me any water for my feet. You didn't wash my feet. She's washed my feet with her tears. You didn't give me a kiss. She hadn't stopped kissing me. Since I got here, she's kissing my feet. You didn't even anoint my head with oil, which is just common courtesy, because I'm not worth much to you. She hadn't stopped anointing me with oil, because I'm worth a ton to her. She's using one of her most costly possessions to anoint me. Therefore, she's loved much, and you've loved little. I think that's the deal with worship. Some people think it's insignificant. I mean, the Pharisee did invite Jesus to his house, and I guess he thought, well, that's enough. You know, it's given this peasant this invitation to this grand house. I don't have to wash his feet or anoint him with oil or do any, give him a greeting of kiss. I'm not going to do any of that because he's not really worth that much. I have invited him in. He should be satisfied. It's kind of like a lot of us do. You know, I mean, I've asked Jesus to be my Savior. I'm a Christian. I claim to be a Christian. I'm not going to get all fanatical about it. I'm not going to go be worshiping and acting all stupid about it. I'm just going to, you know, he ought to be happy I've just accepted him as my Savior. It's just not worth that much. But whenever it's in your heart and it's worth everything, you will break into the crowd. You won't care what anybody else is thinking because your focus is on the Lord. And so it's amazing to me after 20 years of being a pastor, how many people, they, they gripe against people's ways of worshiping. They're drawing attention to themselves. They're too loud. They're too seductive. 
I don't know what's going on inside people's minds, but I'll tell you this. I want to protect anyone's right or how, their style of how they want to come to God because some people don't have anything to bring but what they have. I, I mean, they may be the most insincere people in the world. I don't know that. That's not my job. And if they're not hurting anyone, then I'm going to protect their... People say, why do you let that go on? Look what Jesus let go on. Are you kidding me? Well, I mean, what would y'all do if somebody came up, you know, and was, I'm sitting here preaching and somebody's washing my, you know, and you know she's a prostitute. Jesus, I mean, Daryl, what are you doing? I mean, you, 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 we just don't get this. These stories are so common. We don't realize their, their statements about our passion and our worship for the Lord. He attaches worth to our feelings. She never sang a song, never even said a word. But her worship was so extravagant and extreme. So, is Jesus worth the embarrassment? Is Jesus worth the expression that he's putting in your heart to express? John 4.23, true worshipers. I thought it's funny what Jesus would say that. True worshipers. Does that mean there's false worshipers? Yeah, evidently. I guess there's people that just do it and they just do what they see other people do or they just do it because they just feel like that's what they ought to do. But the deal is there's something called a true worshiper, which Jesus says true worshipers, they worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Not in logic. He's saying there's a spiritual element. There's something deep inside of us that elicits this, just this response to worship God. It's based in truth. Truth in who I am. Truth in who he is. Truth in this whole situation. And then it says this crazy thing. The father's seeking such to worship him. That's why Jesus turned to her and said, do you see this woman? This, this act of worship that she's doing, washing my feet. Do you see her? You see, because I see her, because that's the way Jesus is. Whenever we are worshiping in spirit and truth, I don't care how you look or what you're doing or what God's put in your heart to do. I don't care how silly other people think you look. He sees you. He doesn't see your sin. He doesn't see why you're disqualified. He doesn't see all your hypocrisy. He doesn't see all of that. He sees a heart that's sincerely worshiping him out of a bond, a gratitude, an affection. I've had people say, our, our worship's not emotional. Our worship's doctrinal. I say, what? Do you even know what worship means? Do you think God gave you all this emotion so you could shut it down? Do you really think the mark of a spiritual giant is someone that can shove their emotions down and never cry and never get angry and never... There's like a zombie... Whenever Jesus wept, and God laughs, and God sings, and God dances, and he doesn't want us to do those things. True worship, it elicits a response from God. He sees us. They're just trying to draw attention. Yeah, of God. I'm trying to get his attention. You know, look at me, God, I love you. I can't do enough. It's impossible to please God without faith. It's impossible to please God without faith. 
And there's not a greater act of faith than worship. Not one greater act of faith. Because it says, you must come to God believing that He is. And when you come and worship, and you're worshiping with all your might, there's not a greater testimony anywhere that He is real, and He is in your life, and He means something to you. And then He says this crazy thing. He's a rewarder of those that diligently seek Him. A rewarder. He rewards you when you diligently seek Him. I thought he was always with me. Yes, but there's times we don't feel like he's close. There's times when our problems are so big, it just just seems like all we can see is our problem. He said, if you will diligently seek me, I'm going to reward you. With what? With his presence. You will know he's there. Because he's looking for you. You're connected to him. You'll sense it. And your problem will begin to shrink. Because he's a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. I guess he's not a rewarder of those that casually seek him. I guess he's not a rewarder of those that are indifferent towards him. Some people just say, God knows my address. If he wants to send me a blessing, just put it in my mailbox. I mean, no, they don't say that, but they act that way. But if you've got an issue in your life and you need God in your life, he's giving you something right here. He says, if you will just worship me and you will turn your heart towards me and you will just pour out your heart, I'm going to reward you. I'm going to see you. I'm going to show you my presence. And that's where it all starts to take place. His his presence. He's designed you in a way to know his presence. You can feel him. You can see him or see visions. You can hear him. Sometimes you hear heavenly song. Sometimes you hear heavenly melody. Sometimes you hear a word of knowledge or a word of wisdom. Sometimes the answer to your problem is in a word of wisdom that he's just waiting for you to diligently seek him so he can pour out the answer to you. Two times in my life, 20 20 years as a pastor, and I've seen some really intense worship in this house. Two times. And you may think I'm nuts. And some of you probably already do, but I'm just going to say this anyway, that two times I've seen people have oil show up on their head. And I honestly, this is me. The first time I saw it, I thought, I think that's fake. But no, it wasn't. It was just sitting there. And whenever I touched it and smelled it, it smelled like something I've never smelled in my life. It was so beautiful. And I truly believe a tangible expression of his presence showed up because these people were so pouring their heart out in worship. And they needed a special word. They needed a special touch. I believe he rewards those that diligently seek him. And he does it because he wants our problems to decrease. That's why in Psalm 34, 7 it says, Oh, magnify the Lord. Let's exalt his name together. You know what magnify means, don't you? Make him big. Make him big. Make him great. You say, well, he's already big. He's, you can't make him any bigger. You can make him a lot bigger in your own mind because right now your problem's bigger than God. So when you magnify the Lord, when you exalt his name, especially of us doing it together, and you begin to exalt him and you magnify him, he gets so big in your mind and your problem gets so small. Yeah. Worship's not optional, it's a weapon, it's a gift. It's something that he's given to us. 
And it's not about going through motions. It's about having a heart of affection and a bond with God. And you being willing to do whatever he's put in your heart to do. That you want to worship him with all your heart and soul. And he will grow big. I'm going to end with this. Hezekiah, 2 Kings, chapter 18 and 19. Hezekiah was a great king. King of Israel. He was a great king. He tore down all the altars, the pagan altars. He tore down all the shrines. He tore down all the high places. He, he got rid of uh, all the false worship in Israel. And he really did a lot of great stuff for God. But like many people that do great things for God, he came into a very difficult season. And Hezekiah was a great king, but there was another great king on the planet Earth, and he was the king of Assyria. And Assyria was probably the most dangerous, giant army on Earth, and they were aggressive, and they were taking over the whole world. They had invaded all the surrounding nations, and they had, they had conquered them all, and they came to Israel, and they were now besieging Jerusalem, and King Hezekiah was in there, and he didn't know what to do. He had a big, big problem. Let me, let me get this in perspective, that this would be like a giant invading army coming up through the Central America, through Mexico, conquering them all, coming up through South Texas, all the way up through Lubbock, <laughs> coming from the east and the west coast, all the way across, coming down, and you realize Israel's half the size of the Texas panhandle. All these invading armies are right here, and Israel's right there. And then they besiege your city. And they start taunting you. We're going to destroy you. And Hezekiah was a great man of God. And he told all his people, we're going to trust the Lord. We're going to trust the Lord. And we're going to stand firm. Because you see, he had a relationship with God. He had a relationship with God that preceded his problem. There was, a, there was a whole secret life with Hezekiah and God. They had spent a lot of time together. They had seen a lot of victories together. And so whenever this giant problem showed up, they already had history. And so he, was, he, was good. he knew his God. And he said, people, we're going to trust God. And this pagan king wrote letters and sent messengers into the city that said this. You don't think all these other people trusted their God? You don't think all these other nations, all these other nations and all these other cities, you don't think they had gods? And where are their gods today? We trampled them in the dirt. We burned them up in fire. And we'll do the same thing to your God. Don't let Hezekiah talk you into trusting your God. You're going to die. And then this king of Assyria dared to send these messengers with this scroll, with this threat, with these words to Hezekiah. And it says in 2 Kings chapter 19, verse 14, that Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and he read it. He read this threat. <laughs> and then he went up to the house of the Lord and he spread it out before the Lord. You know why? Because he was a worshiper. And he wasn't saying, God, give me a battle strategy. God, give me the army. God, give me a secret weapon. God, no, he said, God, this is bigger than me and I can't do anything about it, but I know you can because we have history and you're big. And began to exalt the Lord. And you know what? His God got really big. And his problem got really small. And his final words in his prayer were, you know, Lord, 
I pray you save us from his hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you are Lord God, you alone. How does this relate? There's a lot of people get cancer. It's a big, big problem. And sometimes you need to take that diagnosis and just lay it out before the Lord. You don't need to pray for some breakthrough in medicine. You don't need to pray for anything. And maybe there will be. God, thank you for that. I hope there are. But I'm not saying you pray for those kinds of things. I'm saying you say, God, this thing says it's killed so many before me. And it says it's going to kill me. I'm asking you to show up and be bigger than this. That you may be known throughout all the kingdoms of darkness. That you are God. And you are bigger than any of these things. And I'm worshiping you because you are that big. Some of you need to do that. Some of you need to take your problem. You need to roll out that scroll and just read the facts like they are. And just say, yeah, this, is, this seems hopeless in the natural. But I have history with my God. And he is big, big, big. Bigger than any of this. Bigger than any addiction. Bigger than any problem. And you let that worship just come out of you because you have a history with God. You have a history. You know He loves you. And He's going to show up. He showed up here. You read the rest of the story. And there was a miracle breakthrough. And these guys backed off. And Hezekiah was right. And the king of Assyria was dead. <laughs> He's not talking about a physical king here. It happened. It's a literal story. It's a parable of spiritual meaning. It doesn't matter how big your enemy is. God's bigger. But do you do something seemingly significant? That seems like a little thing, just laying it out before God. But there was something inside of him. And I can tell you this, my 40-something years with the Lord, I have taken many times and laid out things before God because of that scripture right there. And I can't think of one time that I did that and I prayed to God and said, God, I need a miracle that he didn't come through and bring me a miracle. He'll do the same thing for you. Worship is so important. It matters. It matters that you participate. I'm not talking about singing your favorite song, and I'm not talking about dancing like somebody dances up here. I'm talking about you doing what God puts in your heart for you to do because God's made you a worshiper. He's made you a worshiper because it's in your DNA. Don't push it aside. It could be the breakthrough that matters. That could, that could help your life turn completely, completely around. Stop sitting in the presence of your problem and begin to sit in the presence of the enemy. I mean, the presence of God. Don't sit in the presence of your enemy. God is so much bigger. And you enter into his presence with thanksgiving and with praise. Psalm 100. And that's how you do it. You don't enter into his presence because you got a really big problem and he feels sorry for you. Most of you are like a lot of people. You... You want God to solve your problem, and then you're going to enter into praise. It doesn't work that way. Your praise is not contingent upon your problem being solved. Your praise comes first. And your God gets big, and your problem gets solved. So that's what we want to happen today. So let's stand together, if you would. As I was worshiping this morning, I felt we didn't do this in the first service, but I feel like... Some of you actually need to come to the altar, and you may not have anything written down, but you can just lay your problem out before the Lord, 
And I'm just going to say, if God's put a conviction on your heart to come and lay this out before God and let him be, get really big to you and your problem really small, I'm just going to ask you to come up here, spend a little secret time with God, and lay your, lay your problem on the altar. God knows what it is, but he's ready for you to bring it to him. And begin to exalt his name that he is so much bigger. So whenever we have an altar time here in a minute, I'm going to invite you to come do that. And if you feel a conviction, I can guarantee you it's not the devil trying to get you to do it. God's prompting you to act in faith. And he's a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. And that's what I'm asking you to do today is diligently seek him. Not diligently seek an answer. Diligently seek him. He is the answer. So right now, close your eyes. Put your hand over your heart. God, I'm just asking that everyone in this room would just feel your presence, would know you're big, that their problem would be so insignificant compared to your greatness, that they would leave here today feeling so light, it would be like a ton of weight just lifted off. And they could go out of here with a song in their heart and that worship would not be difficult at all. Yes, Lord, minister to our hearts. Let the affection of our heart grow. Let us become extravagant, abandoned worshipers. As David said, let us become more undignified than this. Because there's nothing in this world that's worth more than pleasing you. Yes, God. So ministry team, if you want to come up now, um, if you need prayer this morning for anything, we... Uh,